to our five o'clock service. We're starting a new series today on uh, Israel and the Bible, and it's good to have you with us. Welcome to all of you that are watching live via internet, and also those that will be watching this uh, later on during the week. I know people watch the five o'clock service at various times that can't make it for the Sunday evenings. Well, we have for you a short presentation about, some of the, about something that's going to be very exciting that's going to be taking place during Easter. You've heard already about our evangelistic uh, play on This Was Your Life. But also earlier on in Easter week, on the Tuesday evening, we did it last year, we're going to do it again this year, we are holding a Grace for the City Easter celebration at Westminster Chapel. And here's a presentation just to give you a taste of what will be happening. Tuesday the 26th of March in Easter week. We have flyers available, don't we, stewards, uh, for this, which give you more information about how to get there. Many of us who have been at KT know Westminster Chapel very well. R.T. Kendall used to be the senior leader of that church. Why are we going on the Tuesday evening of Easter? Well, it's a special Easter celebration, and Kensington Temple London City Church is uh, hundreds of cell groups, Lots of services and over 50 satellite churches that meet all over London. We are one citywide church. But of course, because of the size of this building, we have a nine o'clock service, 11 and 2.30. We have the coronet overflow, five o'clock, seven, uh, seven o'clock. And then we have the Saturday night and the Friday night and the Wednesday night and the different fellowships and all the satellites that I've already mentioned. But we're one church with one vision to play our part with all the other churches and denominations to take London for Christ. And so it's important that as well as enjoying the different services and cell groups that we go to, that we understand that we are one, one body in the city. And we don't often have opportunities to express ourselves. And one of the great things about Westminster Chapel is it's uh, between two and three times the size of this building, so we can get a lot of KT, London City Church people there, right in the center of London. And so we're going to come together on that Tuesday, we're going to celebrate the death and resurrection of our Savior, we're going to hear testimonies, we're going to pray for new leaders that are springing up right across the city, and then our senior minister will be able to give an apostolic message to the whole, well we won't be able to fit everybody in there, but as many that, can, that, that will come, and speak to an apostolic message to the whole of the gathered Kensington Temple London City Church. So this is a very, very important meeting for us to find out who we are at this type of level, and also a great way to specially celebrate Jesus during Easter week. So I just mentioned that there for you. Tonight at the 7 o'clock revival service, uh, we're going to be hearing the testimonies of the evangelists and witnesses that are right out on the streets right now 
sharing the gospel and the healing teams that went out to share the gospel yesterday. I'm going to bring a word on the prayer of Elijah, uh, we also, but also tonight, our senior minister, Colin, is going to be with us, and he's going to be playing an active leading part in the ministry time of this evening. So it's going to be very exciting this evening. I encourage you, you've, you've made it already to the five o'clock, that uh, why not stay for the seven o'clock and see what God is going to do amongst us. Well, this is the start of a new series called Israel and the Bible. And for us to properly understand our Christian faith, we have to understand and also give honor to our roots. And uh, the roots of the Christian faith are found in Judaism, in Israel. After all, I know that you know this, but Jesus was Jewish. And when he first came, his ministry, by and large, on those, th those three years of ministry, were to the lost sheep of Israel. And so, spending time seeing what the Bible says about Israel can only enhance our understanding of God and his saving history for us. So, in this uh, teaching series, today we're going to look at the story and birth of Israel. Uh, how did Israel actually come to become a nation? And then we'll also be looking in other weeks at the relationship between Israel and the church, uh, the spring and autumn festivals of Israel and their meaning to us as Christians, Israel and the promised land, and also the end-time Jewish revival to come. But to begin with today, we're going to be looking at Israel and the Bible, a brief survey of how the nation of Israel came into being. If we could have the first slide, please, just uh, as um, for introduction, wonderful, in order to understand the four main periods of Jewish history, we need to look at these four things behind me. I'm going to be really just focusing on the first two today, but Abraham, that's where we're going to be starting today, Abraham, who is the father of the Jews. Where did he come from? How did God choose him? How did the beginning of Israel come from Abraham? So that, that's very important because that's the beginnings of the Hebrew people. And then secondly, Moses. Moses, we know that, that after Abraham, we have the other patriarchs. And then we have uh, Jacob and his 12 sons that became 12 tribes. But then when God brought them out of Egypt, it was a defining moment because Moses was given the law and it was really there at Mount Sinai when they received the law at the first Pentecost that ever took place that Israel became, if you like, a defined nation. Many, 12 tribes but one nation. And then although I won't be talking about this Today, uh, the other defining periods are straight after the Babylonian exile, after the judges and the kings. In the end, God judged Israel, uh, and Israel went into Babylonian captivity. We know that, that it did it for 70 years. And when it came out of captivity, it changed dramatically. It's the time of Nehemiah. It's the time of Ezra. It's the time of the restoration of the temple. And then the fourth major period of Jewish and Israel definition took place around the destruction of the second temple. Jesus prophesied about this, didn't he? He said that not one brick would be standing in the temple. And in AD 70, the temple of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans and it's never been rebuilt since. There's a mosque in the place where the temple used to be. So, in introduction, these four aspects of Israel's history are very important. So if you ever want to go a little bit more into detail, this is the definition. These are the events and periods that define Israel. So I'd like to begin with the founder of the Hebrew race, Abraham. And if you have your Bibles with you, oops, I've got so many bits of paper here, I would like you please to turn to Genesis chapter 11. Where did Abraham... Okay, if we keep that slide up, that'll be great. We'll, we'll keep on the slides right now, so we're on Abraham's background. 
slide. That's the one, yeah. So, where did Abraham come from? Why were, why were Abraham and his descendants called Hebrews? Well, Genesis chapter 11 to 15 is a fascinating part of Scripture. There's so much in it. Genesis 11 begins straight after the flood. Think about this. Who survived the flood? It was only a very few people. It was Noah, his three sons, and their wives. They were the only human beings that survived the flood. And all of us, all the nations that are around today have come from the line of Noah and his three sons. They are the ancestor of us all. And in chapter 11, verse 1, we find out that after the flood, now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. This is the story of the building of the Tower of Babel and you probably know it well. So of course when um, Noah and his sons and daughter-in-laws came out of the ark, they all spoke the same language and they began to multiply and bear generations from the three sons and then they came to a place where the Tower of Babel, God had planned for man to go into all the earth and multiply, hadn't he? That was the mandate for humankind to fill the earth. And what was taking place was rather than going and filling the earth, we find in Genesis chapter 11, is that they were staying in one place. They were refusing to move on and they were going to build a city there. And if you know the story, God changed the languages and those languages seem to have been down the lines of the generations of Moses and so straight after that where the Lord confused the language of the earth verse 9 of chapter 11 and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth and then what we have in chapter 11 is is a very important, sorry, well actually, that talks about Babel, but what we have in chapter 10 before that is an, a genealogy. If you go to chapter 10, verse 1, we've just seen what happens at Babel. They're scattered, and now they're going to move across the earth, the descendants of Noah. But in chapter 10, we have a whole chapter of genealogy. And this is the genealogy, the descendants of the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so in verse 2, you see the sons of Japheth were. And then you have the genealogy of Japheth. And verse 5, it says, From these the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to language, according to their family and nations. So this speaks about, about Japheth and how his descendants moved out of, of the middle of Babylon, of Babel, and how they moved out and became many of the nations that were going to be in the north. That's them. Then in verse 6, we have the sons of Ham. And it says, the sons of Ham were, and it goes right through his sons, and who many of these sons became. And uh, it says, afterwards, the family of the Canaanites were dispersed. And so we see how they went to Canaanite, uh, Sidon, Gaza. This is verse 19, Sodom, Gomorrah, Admar, etc. And then in verse 22, we have the sons of Shem. Genesis chapter 10 is called the table of nations. And if you Google the table of nations, you can find some very interesting maps and you can see where from Babel, these three sons and their descendants and the nations that are named in these genealogies spread out in different, in different generations to become the nations that we are today. But we're interested in the sons of Shem and we have their genealogies right there in chapter 10. But if we come back to chapter 11 and verse 10, we pick up again in chapter 11, verse 10, the genealogy of Shem. 
Why is this important? Because Abraham was a descendant of Shem. And in Genesis chapter 11, verse 10, you see the genealogy of Shem, and it goes right down to verse 26, where we see Abraham. Now, Terah lived 70 years and begot Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And then we see Abraham comes into the picture. So out of the three sons of um, Noah, uh, Japheth, Ham, and Shem, Abraham came from the line of Shem. And have you ever heard the word Semitic? Have you ever heard the phrase anti-Semite or anti-Semitism? When we hear the word anti-Semitism, we say that's anti-Jewish, isn't it? Racism against the Jews. Well, the word Semitic comes from Abraham's forefather, Shem. Shem is the word, is from the, the name Shem gives us the word Semitic, Shemetic, okay? Now, the Jewish or the Hebrews or Abraham was not the only descendant of Shem. There were other Semitic nations, such as the Ammonites, the Phoenicians, the Moabites, the Aramaic, the Amorites, the Arabic, the Ethiopian, and the Philistines. These groups of people were also descended from Shem. They are also, in the purest form of the word, Semites. So anti-Semitic, which today means anti-Jewish, comes from Abraham's forefather, the son of Noah, Shem. Next slide, please. Now, the slide that you're now seeing behind me is the journey of Abraham. And we're going to come to that because God called Abraham out of Ur to the land of Canaan. And if you just keep on that big screen, you can see as I'm walking that down here is Ur of the Chaldeans. You, you can see that very close to where the Tower of Babel was, that after Noah's ark descended and they all came into this region, that Abraham had stayed in this region. Many of the others had began to disperse to the different, different, become different nations, but God met Abraham in Ur of the Chaldeans. He was, at that point, a pagan. Do you know that? His father had household idols. But at that moment, God came to Abraham, and his calling to Abraham was a journey. And there you can see it right through the Euphrates to Haran, right at the top where they stayed for a while, and then right down here into the land of Canaan with names like Bethel and Shechem. And so this calling was the beginning of the Hebrew people. And um, we can see this in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. So we've had chapter 10, the table of the nations. We've had chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. We've had seen the descendants of Noah and where they would travel and the nations that they would become. So God was creating nations at this time, not just Israel, but all the nations of the world during these very important chapters in Genesis. And these which would become many nations out of these three sons, were spreading out. But interestingly, Abraham was, was lagging behind. That's why God called him. He, although many of the other Semitic nations that I've mentioned were beginning to move, I mean, when Abraham got into Canaan, the Canaanites were already there, weren't they? But I, I don't want you to think that all these nations here uh, Canaan and Egypt, that they were really established for thousands and thousands of years because they weren't. What's taking place when Abraham is called is everybody is moving. Everybody is migrating. And tribes are going to become great nations. And so when Abraham was called to get out of his country, it was a particular calling, but also all the families and descendants of Noah were being called to different places. And isn't it interesting that the Bible makes it plain that God gives the land of his choice to different nations. The Bible says that each nation has been allotted its land by God. 
And for the period that they're there, of course, great nations have fallen and lost land. And so all nations come and go by the permission of God, correct? He raises them up and he brings them down. And so this was happening right across the board. People were moving. But here is a special calling in the midst of all this migration to fulfill the earth. Let's read chapter 12, verse 1. So chapter 12, verse 1 becomes very interesting when we look at the context, doesn't it? The Noah, the genealogies, the table of nations, people migrating to become nations from the Tower of Babel, and then the line of Shem right to Abraham, and then in the context of all this history, it says, chapter 12, verse 1, Now the Lord had said to Abraham, Get out of your country, from your family and your father's house, to a land that I will show you, And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, right there is a very powerful addition to that prophecy. Yes, all the other descendants of Noah were moving to become nations, and many of them great nations. But this nation that was going to come forth from Abraham was a special nation, a chosen nation, because this nation's destiny was to bless all the other nations. So right at the beginning of the formation in a, in a man and a woman who was barren, A formation of what was going to become a great chosen people was the mandate, the genetic mandate, if you like, in the prophecy that you will be the father, not just of a great nation, we find later on, it will say of many nations. And all those nations that were moving out were going to be blessed by the nation that would come forth from Abraham. And that nation, of course, would be a miracle nation, a nation of miraculous. Isaac would be a miracle baby. It would be a nation of promise and a nation that would bless the earth. Next slide, please. So Abraham is seen as the founder of the Israelites. Now, to use the word Israelites right now is is moving ahead of us, isn't it? Because uh, it was Jacob, wasn't it, that was named Israel. So as Abraham had Isaac and Isaac had Jacob, well, what were they known as? Well, the earliest word for the Israelites was the word Hebrew. Hebrew. You ever heard the word Hebrew? That's what they were called before they became known as the nation of Israel. And they weren't known as the nation of Israel, really, until the time of Moses. They were known as the Hebrews. And again, you can, you can look up the origin of Hebrews, and, and the Hebrew word comes from the word Hibiru, H-A-B-I-R-U. And you can Google that as well if you want to go deeper, H-A-B-I-R-U, the Hibiru. And you can know that at this time that Abraham was going, The Hibiru were known in the records of the Egyptians and the Canaanites, and they were known as herdsmen. But they weren't the sort of nomadic herdsmen that you might think of that would later emerge. Because not only were they herdsmen, but they were also very powerful mercenaries, very powerful warriors. And and they would keep themselves to themselves, And the interesting thing about the Hibiru, or the Hebrew, is that although they settled in Cana and moved around, they never established cities in the early days. It's interesting, isn't it, that Abraham was uh, promised all this land, and we'll come to that, but you know, he never owned a piece of it. He never, when, when Abraham died, the only piece of land that he owned was what? His burial site. Do you remember that? And that's a big story about how, about how that burial site was born, bought. Because the people that had gone ahead, the Canaanites, etc., they were building towns and cities, and, and they were concerned about the Hebrews. 
They were concerned about the way they were prospering and growing. You see times when you read the story of Abraham, isn't it true that there's a lot of conflict going on? even in those early days. And kings are saying to Abraham, can you go away, please? You're going to be too powerful for us. And he moved away. Think about the time when Abraham and, and, and Lot and how they were building wells and other people were saying, that's our wells. And think of the time when Abraham got involved in battles between rival kings. Do you remember that? When he went out and, and he defeated the kings and he met Melchizedek, that priest at Jerusalem. All these things historically were taking place in the context of, of, of what we have just looked. He was seen as the founder of the Hebrews, the Hebrew people, the founder of the Hebrew religion. We see in Abraham's life, we see the origins of God's covenant and promises with the nation of Israel. And it's interesting that when we come to Moses, we find that that Moses with his law did not replace the ancient Hebrew religion. The law did not replace the walk of God with Abraham and the promises of Abraham. He was the founder of a future nation and its land. Let's, I just thought this might be interesting because people, and we will spend some time on the promised land. And what does that mean today? Do Israel still have a right to the promised land, or, or has God finished with his promises of land to Israel? Is, he, is God just interested in the spiritual today, or does God promises to Israel about land still stand today? We're going to have a look at that, because that's a very hot topic. But before we talk about the promised land, I thought it would be interesting for you to see the land that was actually promised to Abraham and his descendants, because I think if you don't know about this, it might shock you. So if you can go to Genesis 15, verse 18, and if we can have the next slide. What you see behind me is in yellow, that is the extent of the land and the nation of Israel under Solomon. Remember Solomon and the great, mighty uh, nation under Solomon? All that in yellow, that is the traditional place of Israel. But you see all of that in green, right over here to the river Euphrates, right down here to Babylon, right down to his birthplace, Abraham, Ur, all that in green. So it's a huge land, isn't it? Iran and, and, and Iraq and all of that. That was promised to Abraham. Let's read Genesis 15:18 On the same day and this is just describing the picture behind me the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying to your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river the river Euphrates the Kenites and the Kenizzites the Kadamanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gigashites, and the Jebusites. All that land was promised to Abraham. And just out of interest, it's interesting that if you look at end time prophecy, and especially um, the dimensions of the New Jer Jerusalem, if you look at the dimensions of the New Jerusalem, which is not just a little city, you know, it's hundreds and thousands of miles, the New Jerusalem. That many end time prophets believe that when Jesus returns, Israel and Jerusalem, the holy city, the city come down from heaven, will be on the footprint promised to Abraham behind us. So it's interesting that I just wanted to show you that. Okay, let's move on to Jacob and the 12 tribes. When we speak about Israel, we often speak about, next slide please, we often speak about the patriarchs. There is Jacob wrestling with the, with the angel. And the patriarchs, these are the early fathers of the Hebrews, or the early fathers and founding fathers of the Israelite nation. It's interesting, isn't it, when you talk about the United States of America, they talk about their founding fathers, those that came together, founded the nation of the United States of America, brought the, um, 
constitution, and people speak about the founding fathers, the patriarchs, if you like, of the United States of America. Well, the patriarchs of the Hebrews, or that would become the Israelites, these are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are the patriarchs. And often in the New Testament, people will talk about Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. Paul will speak about these fathers. They're named in the same breath, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the foundation. And why this is important is because these were the inheritors of the foundational promises, not only of the nation of Israel, but also of the saving faith that would come from the Jews to bless the whole world. And so Abraham established the foundation for the Hebrews, but it was Jacob that brought about a distinct people, race, and nation named Israel. Where the Hebrews described more of a way of life, the way that they were living with their flocks, Israel described now a particular race. And so we know the story of Jacob and how he had his 12 sons and the story of Joseph and how Joseph, by a God-given dream, went into Egypt and through many trials basically ruled Egypt under Pharaoh and prepared the nation for the great famine. And then during that great famine, he was reunited with his 11 brothers and with his father, um, Jacob. And we know the great story behind me that when Jacob, in his early days, wrestled with God. And at that point, his name Jacob, which means struggler, wrestler, struggler, was changed to Israel. Can anybody tell me what Israel means? It means prince. Prince with God. That's what it means. A princely people, a princely nation this was to be. And so the family moved into Egypt and uh, they began to grow. Now, they were, they were in Egypt. This time when they went into Egypt was a long time. It was 430 years that Jacob and his descendants were in Egypt. We know that after a while, a new pharaoh that didn't know Joseph came and enslaved that nation. Now, that's a long time, 430 years. And I want you to think about that. Because if we went back 430 years today, if we said, well, let's go back 430 years, Queen Elizabeth I would be on the throne. We'd be defeating the Spanish Armada and things like that. So that's a long time ago, isn't it? When you think of the history of Europe and Great Britain and the world, since the time of Elizabeth I, there's been a lot of people born a lot of people died and a lot of things taken place. So it is through that vast amount of time that these, this family became a tribal nation. But then, of course, we have the other great figure, Moses. Next slide, please. And Moses, really, the ministry of Moses crystallized this enslaved tribal nation into the nation of Israel and take them to the promised land. And so when God delivered Israel, they were really a bit of a rabble because they, they knew that they were one race, one people, but they'd never, been, never had self-rule. And now as they came out as a nation, God gave them a law. And he gave them a law for a number of reasons. One of the reasons was, is that the nation had forgotten to walk in the path of their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how did they live their lives? They lived their lives by faith. I mean, if you said to Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, name me one of the Ten Commandments, they would say the Ten what? There was no law. From Abraham to Moses, there was no law for 430 years. And Paul makes this point 
in Galatians, when the Galatians are wanting to go back to law, and he's saying, no, no, you, you need to become, you, you want to go back to Moses? Well, let's go back to the real father of the Jews. Let's go back to Abraham. Let's go back to the, to the root of roots. Let's go back to where it all began with Abraham, the father. Let's go back. How did he live? Did he live with the law? He had no law. So how did Abraham live? He lived by faith in the promise and faithfulness of God. And so did Jacob and so did Isaac. They, they, they had promises from God. And those promises, as they began to follow those promises, it began to be a discipleship walk. They learned a lot about themselves and they learned a lot about God. Think about Abraham. It began with a journey, didn't it? Leave your land and come. And he had to leave and, and just believe God. And on that journey into the promised land, and whilst he was in the promised land, and the promise that he would have a great nation, those promises tested his character, grew him as an individual. It was all to do with the promises. Was God faithful? And there was times, of course, when Abraham failed and ran off to Egypt and said that his wife, who God had promised would bear him a child, was his sister. And other times when he didn't believe in the miraculous supernatural power of God and he had his Ishmael. But as he followed the promise and learnt the faithfulness of God and grew in his friendship with God, he got to the place where when God said, take your son and sacrifice him, he said, sure, I'll do that. Because God, you promised in Isaac would be my seed. And that means that I know you well enough to know that you're faithful. And that means if I take my son up and sacrifice him and slay him, then you're just going to have to raise him from the dead. What a mature relation. And all that without the law. And the same promises were delivered to Isaac. They were given to Isaac. God reinforced his promises to, that it, to Abraham, to Isaac, and he reinforced his promises to Jacob. So they all walked according to the promise. Everyone had a promise. Even the people that came out under Moses, they were given a promise, weren't they? Not just a promise, but a promised land. And did they trust the faithfulness of the promise giver? No, they didn't trust the faithfulness of the promise giver. They, they, they disobeyed him. They were a rebellious nation. And so God, because of their rebellion, brought in the law to restrain their sin by fear of punishment, to reveal the full extent of their sin and to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah who would fulfill all promises, not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles, the rest of the nations. Next slide, please. Then, of course, we have the Joshua generation. And the beautiful thing about the uh, Joshua generation is that they believed God. They believed the promise and they went in to take the land that God had promised to them. Now, some people think, well, that was a bit nasty. What about the poor Canaanites? What about, what about all those that they had to kick out? That's, that's a bit unfair. Uh, well, what you've got to realize is that God promised way back to the patriarchs that they would be given the, the promised land, but he said this, don't think, and he said this to the Joshua generation as they went in, don't think that I'm driving out these people because you're so holy. These people have come to a place of judgment and therefore they are being judged for their sin, not your holiness. And when he spoke to the patriarchs, God says, I'm going to give you this land, but the time hasn't come. The wickedness is not great enough for me to judge them. God gave the Canaanites 430 years of grace. And if you understand anything about the Canaanite religion, it was horrific. It babysat, I mean, I, don't, I wouldn't even mention the type of horror of the Canaanite religion. And the main reason to drive out the Canaanites and to destroy them was that they weren't contaminated by their evil religion. And they didn't drive them right out. And in later times, they were often contaminated, weren't they, by false religion and false gods. Now, the time of Joshua was a great time. And then we move into um, the time of of, of, of judges. And, be, and behind me, you see the cycle of judges, because judges is a very important period um, too. 
And if we turn, if you, if you turn in your Bible to Judges, chapter 3 and verse 7. Now, how long did Israel, how long were they ruled by judges? Well, a long time. 400 years. That's a long time. I used to think when I read the book of Judges, oh, it's about 80, 90 years, is it? 100, 120. You know, it's not a big book to read, Judges. And I thought that it, it wouldn't have been a very long time. But actually, it was 400 years. That is a long time. And the book of Judges is interesting because we, we have a tribal nation. And during the book of Judges, you see the strength of these tribes. The tribes would fight together and sometimes fight against one another. And the Israelites' primary uh, allegiance was to the um, tribe that they were in. But the story of Judges is a story of, of a cycle. And uh, the cycle is that the people turn from God. God raises a judge to deliver them. So God judges them by delivering them to their enemies. The people turn back to God for help. God sends a judge to rescue the people, and we have a period of peace under the judge. This happens, this cycle happens again and again. Let me just uh, read this cycle in Judges 3 verse 7. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishthaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Cushan Rishthaim eight years. When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them, Othanel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to the war and, war, and the Lord delivered Cushan Rishthaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishthaim, so the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Canaz, died, and the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the cycle begins again. This cycle is a powerful thing, not just because it describes the people of God, the tribal nation of Israel at that time, and that God raised up leaders of Israel to deliver them. They were deliverers. Their job was to deliver them from the hand of the enemy. They tended just to watch over for the time that they were alive. And then when they died, the people forgot that they'd been delivered from the enemy, and then they got back into sin again. This cycle of Judges is exactly what happens to the church today, the church in whatever nation. What happens is the church gets into a place of great distress. The church stops being obedient to the Great Commission. And the moment that the church or a church in a nation or area forgets the Great Commission of going to all the world and make disciples, especially starting in your home, home city, then what happens is judgment begins to creep in. You say, why is Great Britain in the mess that it's in? Because the church ceased to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. The church in general, um, over the last few generations, has had a watered down, weak gospel and um, been liberalized, has been far too concerned with its own self-concern and has forgotten that we're here. God has left us on the earth to reach people for Christ and disciple them. When the church stops the main thing being the main thing, then what starts to happen is darkness creeps. Because where the light doesn't shine, darkness will creep. And where the gospel isn't preached, darkness will reign. There's only one thing that destroys the power of the darkness, and that is the shared and proclaimed gospel. For it is the power of God to salvation for the Jew first and the Greek. So when the gospel is not preached and shared and witnessed to, then darkness and sin comes. But then God seeks a revival generation, a delivering generation. And the judges were very charismatic people. Do you know that? The Spirit of the Lord came upon them again and again and again. And God looks for a people, a new generation. I believe God is calling on us to play our part at Kensington Temple 
Our vision is one of making disciples. Now we just have to put that into practice, each one of us playing our part, and we can turn back the darkness, and we can be a delivering power for this nation and beyond, and get God back on his throne. Uh, There's a book that you can buy for three pounds. It's the history of British revivals through the ages that I wrote. And it's very similar to what the cycle of judges is, of how revivals come at a great, at, at a very powerful time of darkness. But someone just begins to preach the gospel, believe the word, just simple faith in Christ, and then things begin to change. And that book is only three pounds. And if you've not read it, you, you ought to read it because it will show you that God has not finished yet with this nation. Um, and now, finally, in this introductory session on the birth of Israel, we come to the kings, the kings, David and Solomon, who really established the kingdom of Israel. And uh, it's interesting in Judges chapter 8, because having a king was not something that God was seemed particularly pleased about to begin with, at least. Um, we've seen in, we see in Judges chapter 8 verse 22 that Gideon was asked to become king when he delivered uh, the nation. It says, uh, Judges chapter Sorry, I got the wrong one. 8.22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. And then finally today, if you can turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8, where we see the beginning of the king's. Now, Samuel, he was a prophet of God, but he was also the last of the judges. Remember, the judges ruled over uh, uh, not really a nation of Israel, uh, because the tribes only came together, really, when they had to. They were doing their own thing most of the time. But, uh, and, of course, uh, they didn't have a temple, hadn't been properly built. And so it was a very loose confederation. But here in 1 Samuel chapter 8, it says in verse 4, Then all the elders of Israel, that's all the leaders of the different tribes, came together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them, according to all the works which they have done since the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now, therefore, heed their voice, however. You shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of a king who will reign over them. And then, of course, we get the kings. We get Saul and David and Solomon and the time of kings. And this time of kings is, is a powerful time, but also in the kings is the seed of the destruction of Israel. Because... If we fast forward right to the Babylonian captivity, actually, very quickly, straight after Solomon, when when Solomon finished his reign, the nation split in two. Did you know that? And from that moment, from after Solomon, it didn't last long, did it, this great nation? They, They were always very tribal at heart, always very tribal. And even the separation of the kingdom was based on tribes. So you had the smaller southern uh, nation of Judah centered around Jerusalem and then you had northern Israel and northern Israel very very often would go after foreign gods and sometimes so would southern Israel and you've got that cycle again and it talks about the kings instead of the judges so a good king came 
and did the good things. And then a bad thing came and turned to other religions. And you get this toing and throwing and this cycle until finally judgment comes and northern Israel is taken away into captivity, disappears without trace. And then finally, the southern kingdom is also taken into Babylonian captivity. And then those 70 years, God does a work and brings them back for the restoration between Nehemiah and, and, and Ezra. And that's where I want to end today. I may or may not finish some of this next week, or I may move on to another subject. I just think sometimes when we're reading our Bible and we're going through these things, that it's good to step back and see a little bit historically how this all threads together. And so that you can see that from Abraham right through to the kings, how God was establishing uh, the kingdom and nation of Israel. But all the time through establishing this one kingdom, it was not just for the benefit of that one kingdom. The nation of Israel was brought into existence. The Hebrews were brought into existence. And the sole point was that one day out of Israel, a light would shine to the Gentiles. And that all those nations that scattered in those early days to their different places, God was raising up one man, Abraham, to eventually reach all men. And one people, the Hebrews, the Jews, to eventually carry the good news to the Gentiles. And so when we read in the New Testament about go into all the world and the gospel is not just for the Jew but for the Gentiles, which means nations as well, we can see that the gospel going to all the nations is found right there in the beginnings of the Hebrews that would become Israel. And throughout their whole formation and dealing with God, God was dealing with them and working in this nation, his work, so that his promised to Abraham would take place that in all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And isn't it wonderful that now anybody can be a true child of Abraham by just faith in Christ. We're all children of Israel, all children of Abraham, Jew or Gentile. Does that mean that Israel no longer has any purpose since the gospel has made us all sons of Abraham? Of course not. And in the next few weeks, We'll be looking at the, the ever important importance of the nation of Israel and its continuance in God's plans right to the time when Jesus returns. Well, I do hope you'll, you'll be able to stay with us for the next service. It's going to be a time of great power, we believe, and ministry and the word. Uh, but thank you for being here at the five o'clock teaching service and hope to see you here next week. God bless you. Thank you, Bruce. What a fascinating...